Welcome to One Decision. I'm Laura Rosen, your guest co-host. I'm joined today by former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. Today, we're discussing how the Middle East is navigating a world reshaped by Russia's war on Ukraine. Putin's invasion has Western leaders looking to the Middle East as they try to squeeze Russia's economy. But Saudi Arabia and its crown prince have so far been cool to Western efforts to get him to pump more oil to get gas prices down. And the Arab Gulf states, as well as Israel, have been cautious to date about condemning Russia. Joining us today is Wall Street Journal investigative reporter Justin Sheck. Justin is co-author with Bradley Hope of a recent book on the Saudi crown prince called Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power. Thank you for joining us, Justin. Thank you for having me. Sir Richard, you've spent a lot of time dealing with the Saudis and with the Russians. Start us off with what you're thinking about as you watch these momentous events in and out of Ukraine, especially for Western leaders trying to unify against Putin and squeeze his economy while not starting World War III or losing their jobs in upcoming elections over issues like high gas prices. Well, because we're talking about energy supply, I suppose the primary point that we have to make is that following Putin's, in my view, surprising decision to invade Ukraine, the consequence is that every European nation has to completely reassess its energy security. So what has happened is that energy security has become the sort of primary issue in terms of looking at nations national security policies. And although this has been implicit below the surface, in my view, for quite some considerable time, it hasn't been an issue which has been admitted openly by European leaders. And of course, what we're faced with in particular is a crisis in regard of some of the primary European powers, Germany in particular, that had developed an energy policy unwisely, in my view, which was almost totally dependent on Russian gas. So, and then, of course, there are other nations like Italy, which, uh, and, and, and some of the lesser European nations, I mean, lesser in terms of geopolitical influence and power like Bulgaria, whose dependence on Russian energy supplies is absolutely massive. So, overnight, you know, they've had to sit down and rethink entirely their, the, the, the policies in a way which are most fundamental to the security and future of those nations. So, so we're at a very important uh, turning point in European politics, probably the most significant series of events since the immediate post-war period in 1945. If you were advising... Um Prime Minister Johnson or, or President Biden, and you're looking at um, this turning point, and, um, and one of the enablers of Putin is high energy prices. Um, how would you advise them to deal with other ruthless autocrats in the Middle East um, who have the power to affect, uh, most, most rapidly affect um, those prices? Well, in a way, <laughs> I think it's a little unfair, you know, to draw a comparison between autocrats. Uh, yeah. and, you know, because on the one hand, Russia's behavior has been extreme. 
On the other hand, if you look at the, the Middle East, um, I mean, let's be pragmatic and realistic. And I've dealt personally with the Saudi leadership in the past at a considerable amount. The Saudis, in terms of geopolitical influence, let's say have one and a half levers, which they don't necessarily get an opportunity to operate very often. And at the moment, they find themselves in a crisis which, in my mind, is not that surprising. And how the Saudis behave, you know, is for them a matter of huge and let, let it internal importance. And what I mean by that is the, the, the Saudis, in my experience, are very, very difficult to deal with when they believe that they have um, a handle on a lever which is in, of importance to the rest of us. I mean, this is a, a, a tribalized society with a very heavy, uh, let's say, internal focus in terms of their own interest. And therefore, dealing with the Saudis when we have a situation as we have now is not going to be straightforward an issue, issue because all sorts of other rather personal, rather petty considerations come into play. And um, Mohammed bin Salman is a very young man without a lot of geopolitical experience. Um, he's been thrust into a position of huge influence and responsibility in terms of Middle Eastern politics. And therefore, he is not going to be sure-footed or easy to deal with because he's going to want to extract the maximum um, from, as it were, the opportunity that he, he's presented to him. And, of course, there is the, the personal animosity between him and the, let's say, democratic leadership in the United States. And then, of course, there's a further dimension behind this, which is, you know, whether uh, the original signatories to the uh, JCPOA, the uh, agreement uh, with Iran, uh, you know, whether we're moving towards reconfirmation of that agreement, which, of course, to the Saudis is anathema. So, I mean, this is a multidimensional problem. And I mean, what I would say is I don't think you should judge where the Saudis are now at the moment in terms of where they might eventually be, because there's a lot of emotion and a lot of um, inexperience tied up uh, with their reaction. And um, you know, if you take Mohammed bin Zalman in, in, in the Emirates, I mean, he, he also is notoriously difficult character when he's trying to play both ends against the middle, which he's doing at the moment. And Mohammed bin Salman, I think, has frankly at the moment misplayed his hand and not really faced up to the reality of Saudi's geopolitical position. Where we end up, well, we'll see. But this is not resolved. It's very, very early days in a major crisis. That's interesting that you you don't think necessarily like an ultimatum um, when dealing with someone who may be emboldened, over emboldened and inexperienced is this way um, yeah, but, to manage know, it. Let's be realistic. The Saudis can play footsie with the Russians in the middle of this crisis, but that's not where they're going to end up. Saudi mm -hmm. interests do not lie by any stretch of the imagination in an alliance with Russia. Justin, um, 
tell us about the Saudi crown prince. And, you know, as I'm sitting here in Washington and we see the Republicans um, being very confident that the high gas prices are going to, um, you know, help elect them into majorities in the midterms in a few months. Um, what does MBS want from Biden? And, um, you know, yeah, what, what does he want from him? Well, I think Sir Richard makes a really good point um, about how Saudi tends to be inward looking. And when they have a lever, oftentimes they use it for purposes that are not just about foreign policy, but that are internal. I think with Mohammed bin Salman, a lot of those issues are magnified because he's not the king. And this is maybe not as big an issue now as it was three or four or five years ago, but he's still the crown prince and he's still has reason to want to prove to his people that he's, you know, kingly material. And you don't prove that you're kingly material by backing off or by taking a stand that you then look like you have, have given in on. So when he does something out of emotion or out of stubbornness, he then kind of backs himself into a corner and can't really easily pull out of it. So in this case, you've got this issue where he is dealing with an American administration who I think at a personal level, he doesn't like, like he doesn't like these people. He knows them from the Obama administration and his first exposure to them as you write in the book was when uh, Hillary Clinton came to Saudi and his father uh, brought him into a meeting when very, where very few people knew who he was from the American delegation. He stood up and he criticized Hillary Clinton and he's you know repeatedly gone after them over the Iran deal and, and, made it so that he's, you know, he, he's been difficult to work with for these guys and he's been very easy to work with for the Republican administration, for the Trump administration. And so now he, um, you know, he's inexperienced, but he's, he's shrewd and he understands when he has leverage, he understands that the longer gas prices are high, the more likely it is that Democrats lose in midterm elections and anything he can do to reduce the Democrats' power, or even just to make them uncomfortable and make them feel like he has control of it, he's going to do. That seems to be the way he makes decisions. Or his decisions are generally tactical, not strategic, and they have to do with what can he do right now to get leverage over whoever he's dealing with. So it's, it kind of puts the U.S. in a very difficult position because you don't want to reward this kind of behavior, you also don't want to lose the midterm election. So is it, you know, if the Houthis got, if the U.S. put the Houthis back on the on the terrorism list, is, is there some transactional, transactional formula that he would be able to show his population, you know, he's the big guy, he got these concessions and they'll pump more oil? Um, or you think that it's something that he's, he's sort of um, determined to increase his leverage possibly by having using high oil prices to, to elect. It's a great question. I don't know. Cause I think, you know, Yemen is such a hot, hot button issue because these guys initially, the Biden administration, back when these same people were in the Obama administration, were the ones who kind of sort of gave a tacit go ahead to the bombing of Yemen, but were never really comfortable with it and never really got behind it. And I think have regretted not um, being more forceful in, in opposing it early on. And that's a cause of ongoing resentment for for Saudi and the UAE that the U.S. has never gotten behind them in Yemen. So now to go and sort of say, OK, we approve of this bombing that's been on for years, I think would be a, a tough pill to swallow for the Biden administration. 
I don't really know what they could give MBS that would that he could hold up as a victory other than some kind of slowdown of negotiations with Iran. I think that's the real thing. And as long as this administration is going to move ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that the issue, the sort of subtext here is Iran for the moment. And I mean, bear in mind in the last few weeks, we've had Houthi attacks on various um, oil installations continuing in Saudi Arabia. This is a big deal. And I mean, in a way, what 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 the global community haven't considered is a double oil crisis <laughs> whereby you have a conflagration in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran at the same time as we have a problem in Ukraine. And I mean, uh, the implications that lie behind that is that, you know, we could see oil being driven to 200 bucks a barrel with a consequent impact. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but what I'm saying is that this is a multi-dimensional problem. It's not just about Ukraine. It's not just about Russia. And I think that um, you made a very, very good point about the shrewdness of the, I mean, there may be an experience, but the Iraq, uh, sorry, the, the Saudis, in my view, are extremely shrewd in terms of the way they see tactical issues. And, 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 and they are very tough in protecting um, their own, areas of unique interest and they're very very difficult to deal with i mean i had a lot of experience of being on visits to saudi arabia <laughs> I mean, really having a, a pretty dreadful time because they even people who can seem so courteous and gracious when they receive you socially and they entertain you when you get down to hard tax boy they they can be unbelievably difficult, unbelievably. I mean, I can't speak openly about my experience because it contains things which reflect on British national security. But I mean, some of the visits I made to Saudi Arabia to talk to the Saudis where they sent, let's say, the head of intelligence rather than a minister because ministers didn't like doing business with them on certain issues. I mean, the, the experience can be deeply unpleasant. You have no idea quite what it's like. And I mean, that's the situation that we're in at the moment between, I mean, there is this, I think, personal element of animosity between Salman and the, and, and, and the Biden administration. There's no question that that exists. And I mean, let's face it, uh, I mean, uh, Trump's attitude on Middle Eastern issues and Saudi Arabia in particular really shifted the tectonic plates in a way which is quite surprising. And that continues in the background because you've got these meetings now taking place at a lower ministerial level, including the Israelis. And, you know, the, the, there's been a huge shift in the Middle East and, and, and you can't ignore that that's happened because it has momentum behind it. I mean, I recently was talking to a young Bahraini minister and, uh, and I, I would be indiscreet to name names, but I mean, he, he was sort of explaining to me the benefits um, to them of the links that they now have with the Israelis. And this is unimaginable from the past. So there has been a shift. There has been a movement. Things have moved onwards. Absolutely. I mean, there was this extraordinary meeting um, the past couple of days. You saw in Israel with the Israelis hosting um, several Arab foreign ministers um, and, and Blinken. Um, and it's apparently going to be a semi-annual um, event. And, you know, Bahrain and the UAE and, and Egypt and Jordan 
and Morocco participated. And even though Saudi Arabia hasn't joined the Abraham Accords yet, it's, there have been re- reporting that uh, Mohammed bin Salman would be interested. It's his father, the king, who uh, is probably putting the brakes on that for now. Can I ask, Justin, because your paper reported a couple weeks ago that Mohammed bin Salman supposedly rebuffed a White House effort to see if he would be interested in a phone call with President Biden. What did you make of that report and the Kremlinology kind of of that? It was fascinating. This whole this whole like dance around who Mohammed bin Salman is going to talk to on the phone has been going on for a while because for some time there was this stance in the U.S. that the president speaks with heads of state and people who work for the president speak to the sons of heads of state. And, you know, Biden didn't want to get on a, on a call with Mohammed bin Salman. And so now that there is sort of this crisis and there's a reason to do it. Mohammed bin Salman is, is kind of, you know, again, tactically able to, to, to win this little battle. And it's it's all, you know, it, it, it's like it looks a lot like playing games. And I think ultimately it is. But back to something Richard had said, I think what a lot of this is rooted in is that, you know, he doesn't see this as. I need to deal with America and there are going to be ups and there are going to be downs in the relationship and it's a continuous relationship. I think he sees this as he had these really difficult Americans who were in charge and then the Trump people came in and they had this totally different worldview where in the eyes of the Trump administration, the Middle East was like good guys and bad guys and the good guys are Israel and Saudi Arabia and UAE and the bad guys are Iran and Qatar and maybe Turkey and there was inevitably going to be a conflict, and the U.S. was fine with hastening that conflict and fine with taking sides. He loved that. That's his vision. That aligns with his vision. Now he's back to these guys who want some kind of stasis, and they want a, a balance of power, and they want to sort of help out the bad guys and, and kind of tamp down the good guys. And, and it's, he doesn't like any of this. So everything he does, these little things like not taking a phone call uh, and not being willing to negotiate, I think are very much rooted in this idea in his head that he has a choice of which Americans to deal with. Well, there's someone else that Trump got along well with. You know, Trump got along pretty well with Putin and he didn't care about his human rights record and he didn't care who he was poisoning in London or anywhere else. And you see that series of these events and he didn't care about Putin's interference in the United States elections. What I'm talking about is there seems to be a risk of overreach on the Saudi part, you know, thinking that, you know, they'll get another Trump. Well, we've seen now that the U.S. and the Western world has turned very hard against Russia um, Putin did overreach, um, and and you know, a lot of Americans are not going to be sympathetic to MBS looking like he's trying to interfere in the United States elections and um, get more autocratic type figure like Trump in, in power. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because, you know, Biden has been talking about this battle between democracies and autocracies, and I don't think it's totally cynical. I mean, I, I'm largely agreeing with Justin's analysis. I think you know his sort of reflection on the uh, on the pettiness and, and, and the, the inwardness of the consideration of some of these issues. We we see them from a different perspective. But you've got to, if you go to Riyadh and you sit down in Riyadh with these people, you you begin to understand why they have a different view. I mean, the idea of politics being enough, personal is totally amplified there because it's like much more literally. Personal. Yeah, it's. Yeah. it's it, it's extremely. I mean, it's an extraordinary experience to 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 have to, as it were, deal with this, and um, the way that you are treated in relation, even if you've got really important things to say, is it? It's all designed to sort of suck you into their local vision 
of how these things work. And I, I think, you know, we, we impose on them a vision which is uh, not the way that they're thinking on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe strategically, eventually, they'll end up in a similar position to us, but not at the moment. Anyway, Justin, you go ahead. <laughs> well, one thing I just want to kind of digress for a second. When I, I kept on reading and hearing about these, this phone call issue with Biden, and it kept on, you know, I got this, kept getting this weird sense of deja vu. It's like I went back and went through my book, and my colleague, my co-author Bradley and I wrote about this one episode early on when, when after Salman became became king, where Mohammed bin Salman asked the U.S. ambassador uh, if President Obama would meet with him. He wanted it to be one of his first meetings as, uh, you know, as a prominent prince, and. Um, the, the ambassador said, no, you know, the U.S. president meets with other heads of state. And at that point, he wasn't even, and Mohammed bin Salman wasn't even officially the crown prince. And so what Mohammed said in response was, okay, fine, I've got an invitation to meet Putin. I'm going to go to Russia and meet him. So there is, you know, like, this is a repeat of, of at a very personal level of, of things he's been doing with these same people, the same people in the administration now for years. But, and so on, on the, the question about about you know autocracies and democracies it's a really hard one for saudi to stomach i think because mohammed bin salman is not like embarrassed about running an autocracy he doesn't you know he he has never said he supports democracy he doesn't seem to be sympathetic in any way to participatory government he is you know 100 percent comfortable with running this place uh as, as an absolute monarch and I think the way he sees it is the U.S. has been his country's ally for, you know, close to a century. And the monarchy has benefited the U.S. and the monarchy has been loyal to the U.S. And so now to say, for the U.S. to say, you don't like monarchies or you don't like autocracies is, is a betrayal to him. He sees that as a betrayal and he sees the, this as uh, an old friend that's not valuing the friendship. And so a lot of these things he's doing are ways of reminding the U.S. of the value of the friendship. And it's a tough position for Biden because as a U.S. president, you, want to be, you don't want to be going around saying, we hate autocrats except for our friendly autocrats, and they're great. You can't, it seems very hypocritical. But also when you say things like, you know, autocracy is bad, it can have a really, you know, uh, corrosive effect on relationships like, like Saudi and UAE. Yeah, I mean, Sir Richard, I don't sense that the U.S. and I don't know about Britain are really pushing that hard for the Saudis um, to do you know, democratize, I sense that it, it's also, even with Biden, a somewhat transactional relationship. Is that is that a fair? Well, I think that's fair. I mean, look, there's no way when, you know, British ministers go to Saudi Arabia, whatever they may say publicly, that they're seriously pushing the Saudis to democratize. I mean, you know, if you experience Saudi society, there's no way that Saudi society in its current form uh, and its religious structure is going to move in that direction at all. I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's going to, as it were, claim that it's... I, I, they, they have a phrase which I think is, is... which Justin will be familiar with, which is consultative democracy. Um, <laughs> and that means you go out and you have, you know, your sure and you meet with the people and you listen to what they have to say. But do they get a chance to vote or express their political views? No way. I mean, you know, the structure of Saudi society is essentially tribal. Um, and, you know, it's focused on tribal relationships, on the mosque, 
um, on various ways that you can express your views through those structures. But the idea that it's going to be, you know, I think it's misguided of us to think that we can impose our political structures on them. Um, and I mean, Justin made this point, you know, this is a hundred year old reliance. It goes way, way back. And um, we have to recognize that there are autocrats, if you wish me to, to express it that way. And, you know, there are other autocrats who behave in their way, which we thoroughly disapprove of. We disapprove of the Saudis um, in, in, in all sorts of ways. You know, they've just executed, you know, what public execution of 81 criminals or something. Um, do, we, do we approve that? No, we deeply disapprove of it. But, I mean, the fact is that geopolitically, they are our allies and they are relatively important geopolitically at the moment, particularly as they have this one lever, which is, you know, the, 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 the price of oil and to an extent the price of gas. Uh, and they're going to play that for all it's worth in the current circumstances. But, I mean, the idea that the uh, Saudis are going to cozy up to Russia in the long term, I think, is is for the birds. I just don't think that that's going to happen. They can threaten us. They can make us believe that maybe that's what they're going to do, but that's not going to happen. Um, Mohammed bin Zalman, that's just a little bit different because you know, they have a financial system there which is attractive to Russian oligarchs and autocrats, and they're desperate to sustain their financial center and their influence, and maybe Russian money will help them do that in a way that at the moment is looking pretty flaky and, 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 and not so certain for the future. And I mean, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has always been um, equivocal and difficult to deal with and has, and has played the West off, you know, France against the UK. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, issues that I could, 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 could create as an example. But, uh, but I mean, they're, they're not going to change the geopolitics of the region. They're too small, frankly. Let me ask them, the Saudis are not the only players in the Middle East. The Emiratis have played a somewhat more um, ambiguous role, taking a somewhat more neutral position on Putin and making some more friendly noises in Biden's Washington on whether they'd support OPEC plus increasing oil supplies. Um, so, Richard, tell me a little bit about the UAE and its balancing act as a small, maybe a smaller power but but it's also you've seen this amazing in recent weeks you know um the abu dhabi crown prince meeting with assad also meeting with the israeli you know the israeli leaders he was meeting with uh, in going to meet with blinken in morocco i mean he seems to be the most diplomatically ambitious of of the middle eastern leaders yeah well i think they are i mean you know their power is has a very narrow base but on the other hand they are currently geopolitically in the region influential because they've built up their defense capabilities. They're a confirmed opponent of, of Iran. Um, they have a role to play. But as I say, in the past, you know, they've, uh, they're very good at, you know, blowing hot and cold with you. It's very difficult on a year by year, month by month basis to understand exactly where you stand with them. They're tricky to deal with. But on the other hand, they're essentially, you know, part of, let's say, the, the, the Western interest, right. if I can put it that way, in the Middle East. But then they're, they're not a sort of reliable and dependable partner. And I've mentioned this issue of 
you know, they're trying to build a financial center in that part of the world. And, you know, they're, they're obviously rather in awe of, let's say, the money of Russian oligarchs, if it's going to move its focus out of London, which it certainly is now, and then be deposited in, in, in that area. And they, they, they could or would benefit from that. I, I still don't share the view that you're going to see them, as it were, alienating their relations with the West generally because of this crisis in Ukraine. They're going to try to play it to their own advantage, which is what we see at the moment. So there's going to be enormous awkwardnesses, disagreements and problems. But do they have a longer term perspective? I'm not sure. I mean, this issue comes up with the Chinese and their attitude towards dealing with the Chinese. And you can see that they're trying to play it both ways without, um, you know, burning their boats with the West, because ultimately they look in the West's direction. But on the other hand, it's very tempting for them to say, well, and actually, I mean, the irony is that Israel itself has been through this issue of close relations with China and pretty much come out the other side and decided that, you know, although it has a surprisingly good relationship with, with both Israel and Russia, they, sorry, with both China and Russia, ultimately they look towards the United States as their primary ally. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think on, on the Chinese front, like China is sort of the, the interesting thing in the background because it doesn't make sense for Saudi Arabia and UAE to pivot from the US to Russia. They, like, you know, 40 years ago, you could pivot from the US to, to the Soviet Union and, and that would, you could make a credible argument then for why you do that. But Russia's just not economically powerful enough. It's not stable enough. It's not, it doesn't, it, it's not significant enough globally to ally with as a, as a substitute for the US, whereas China arguably is. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a problem with trade because nobody buys or sells things in Yuan. But in other ways, I, I think, you know, in theory, they could pivot to China. It doesn't seem like it would be in their best interest. Uh, at least it wouldn't be in their best interest the way they've been framing their, their own interests for decades. And I think they do look to the West. And I also think, you know, something Sir Richard reflected at just now is that this issue of like, what is their long-term strategy? What are their long-term goals versus what's short-term? And that's, you know, that's always a weird question there because Mohammed bin Salman has talked so much about how his top priority is getting away from, from the dependence on oil and becoming this like global economic hub and becoming a place where oil isn't the only engine of the economy because for years they've been worried about the oil running out. And more recently, they're running about, they're worried about the demand running out. They're worried about electric cars and, and all these other measures that could reduce oil demand. And so I think he's very concerned with getting away from the, the reliance on oil. But he's also like in the very short term using oil as, as this, this lever that can undermine some of the longer relationships. I mean, Ju Justin's spot on because, I mean, look, let's just remind ourselves, Russia has the GDP of somewhere between Italy and Denmark and its prospects in the medium to long term as we cut our, as it were, reliance on carbon energy are really poor. It's, Population last year declined by over a million. No one quite knows why. I mean, this is not a major power. It's a major troublemaker that has phenomenally good 
rocket forces and a good underwater warfare capability. But it's invaded a near neighbor who it outnumbers 10 to 1. And it hasn't even succeeded militarily in gaining Ukraine. I mean, what's happening at the moment is appalling for Russia in terms of its global reputation. Absolutely appalling, whatever we may think and however badly it turns out for Europe. I mean, this is, you know, the the, the prime example of post-imperial angst and decline. I mean, Russia is, is on a very, very slippery slope and it'll cause great tragedy for a lot of people as it goes down this slope. China is a different issue. And of course, you know, it, it, it has the, the, the primary forces and the primary powers that Russia lacks. You're making me think that uh, in a way this, this could work out pretty well for China, right? Because it has this sort of, over the past recent years, it's increasing alliance with Putin, but Putin's becoming very dependent on them and, and weaker in, in between the two of them, right? According to, you know, in relation to the West, and China, it seems, in a few years, would be the one to be able to emerge to um, tell Russia how it's going to be in their... Well, in of course it will, because, you know, if, if we isolate Russia to the extent that sanctions suggest, uh, well, I, I, I think the unfortunate aspect of that is that we drive Russia into the arms of China. Right. And, you know, uh, how the... But, I mean, in terms of international acceptability and respectability, how Xi Jinping now plays his cards uh, in terms of the global security system will tell us a great deal about the nature of the Chinese state, the Chinese administration, and what sort of partnership. I mean, let's face it, if you look to the future, the crucial partnership is going to be between the United States and China. It's not between the United States and Russia. And you know, Xi Jinping has to worry much more about what the Americans think he's up to with Putin. And I mean, the key question I think that we all need to answer in our minds is, did Putin tell Xi Jinping at the Winter Olympics meeting that he was going to invade Ukraine? So Western, I mean, if you listen to Biden, it sounds like Putin may not have told him the whole plan. And there's some withholding, yeah? You know, let us hope for Xi Jinping that he didn't tell him, <laughs> because, you know, if, if Xi Jinping turned around and said to him, fine, go ahead. I mean, there, you know, there's an absolutely key question here about our future relations um, and, and, and the way that, you know, Pax Americana will adapt to a world in which it's, you know, China as a partner. So, I mean, what's happened in the last six to eight weeks is absolutely seminal in terms of our future interpretation of international security. I mean, this is, it, it, it's both tragic, but it's also fascinating if you're a student of geopolitics. Is there any wedge to be partially driven between Russia and China over these horrific events? With, if, you're, if you're Biden, are you, you know, he met, talked with, he talked with Xi, Xi and, and uh, Jake Sullivan was meeting with his Chinese counterpart last week. And, you know, are they trying to actually drive a wedge between China and Russia or you think they're just trying to? I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's a good question. I think I, I'm sure I'm sure they are trying to drive a wedge, but I don't know how I don't know how much leverage they have, because it's like, you know, this is one of the, these things where I think the ball is in China's court because 
China doesn't, I, I think China probably doesn't have that much to gain by really going out and supporting Russia, doing something that most of the rest of the world condemns, but also doesn't have like that much to lose other than goodwill and, and maybe, you know, the, the convenience of, of, of the relationship with the U.S. So it's hard for me to see what kind of leverage the U.S. could put on them, but it's also hard for me to see why China would want to really go out on a limb and, and really help Russia out here. I don't think China has that much to gain by, by you know, furthering this war and furthering the invasion. So I think that if you follow Chinese politics closely, there's been a, a definite uh, let's say, restraint in some aspects of Chinese foreign policy in the last 18 months. Uh, they have been, in a way, less aggressive than they were during a certain period. And, and, and I think there's an element within the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party which is saying, look, hang on a moment. Soft power for China has always been uh, a hugely important benefit. We have not been seen as an internationally aggressive nation. That's, that's despite their behavior in the South China Sea. Um, and, and I think that I agree with Justin about what, what, what do they gain from coming out as a sort of backer of Putin? They, it, it damages Chinese international image to a point uh, which I think works very adversely in, ter in terms of China's long-term interest. And of course, you know, we have the dreadful parallel sitting there potently of Taiwan. But I, 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 and I mean, the crucial question for all of us is what lesson do the Chinese draw from Ukraine if they look at Taiwan? And, and I mean, the likelihood is that they draw caution. Um, you know, an amphibious invasion of a mountainous island, um, you know, with a military which is, I mean, on Taiwan, which is highly sophisticated, armed by the West, have all the advantage of modern weapons. The Chinese must be thinking, oh, mm, yes, maybe political pressure is the way to go, not military pressure. I mean, obviously, they've obtained their military capability and it will look like pressure, but um, you know, so, so there are some really potent questions raised um, about the bigger, you know, and it is the bigger issue of our future relations with China. And of course, at the moment, we can't think too much about those because the tragedy of Ukraine is so overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm far from an expert on China, but you know, one of the differences between China and Saudi Arabia when we're talking about their relationships with Russia is that Whereas China has not really had an appetite for, you know, loss of life and, and sort of, uh, you know, military adventures that, that can result in a lot of dead people. Mohammed bin Salman has shown a real willingness to engage in, in deadly conflict for essentially for political purposes, uh, you know, in, in Yemen. And, you know, the, when the Yemen bombing started, he said it would be over in two weeks. And that was close to seven years ago. <laughs> So, and he's shown a willingness to, to continue dropping bombs that, that are killing civilians and continue taking actions that are resulting in, in uh, you know, widespread humanitarian crises for essentially a, a political war. And so... And all this time, I mean, the, the Houthi missile strikes and drone strikes are becoming even more, uh, on Saudi Arabia and the Emirates are becoming even more alarming, right, than, than when the war started during the Obama administration. Right, but if he tries to stop those drone strikes by stopping the bombing, then he looks like he lost. 
and right. and Absolutely. he unfortunately he lost because yeah I mean he he backed himself into a corner he's not the king yet he has to he has to be able to claim victory and so it, it's a very it's very difficult when you're dealing with someone who whose foreign policy is based largely around bolstering their own standing within their own country it's a very difficult situation for Absolutely. anyone dealing with them. So I've, I was in Vienna recently watching the Iran nuclear talks when they seemed like they were almost going to reach conclusion a couple of weeks back. And literally, it was the day after the war in Ukraine had started. And at that point, the, um, you know, the Russians and, and Chinese and Americans and Europeans all seemed to be working pretty well together. And it literally shifted over the next two weeks as it was clear that the instructions from Moscow to uh, Russia's negotiator in Vienna were were shifting as as um, Western sanctions were Im- imposed on Moscow, and and you saw Russia um, for a time suggest that it might put up roadblocks um, to letting the Iran deal come into force and Iran bringing all its oil onto the market. That 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 hurdle seems to have been overcome. Um, now we're waiting. It seems on a couple last decisions on. Um, related to the designation, the terrorism designation of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. But um, I I would say we've seen 11 months of negotiations and the deal looks pretty close. How do you both see, um, I I would say, the likelihood of the Iran deal being resurrected, um, affecting the Saudis and this whole uh, puzzle? I've always been a skeptic about the um, JCPOA. Um, I think it's given the you know Iranians a, a, a ticket to misbehave across the Middle East, having made this deal on one issue. Uh, frankly, I think in the current circumstances, I and uh, despite the fact that supposedly these last bits have been put in place, I would be. I, I think we may find that there's a sort of deep freeze on the issue, and there isn't final agreement. That would be my prediction, but I, I'm, I'm not closely informed. This is purely a guess on my part. And um, uh, in a way, I, I have to, as it were, reveal a, a personal preference for the, for, 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 the, the, for the JCPOA not being renewed. All right, Justin, what about you? I don't, I don't know. I think it's a great question. And, and I think, um, you know, it's obviously a priority of this administration to come to some agreement with Iran. They feel that's the most likely route toward a peaceful Middle East. And I think we don't know the lengths to which the Saudis and the Emiratis are willing to go right now to, to try to get in the way of that. And, you know, I think, you know, the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll see it play out. If, if they decide to continue holding off on, on increasing oil production or give some more sort of meaningful, uh, you know, kind of support to, to Russian, sanctioned Russian oligarchs or something as a way of getting in the way of the deal. I, I think, you know, it, it could be a long time before something happens. At the same time, you know, once, you know, during the initial iteration of the Iran deal, it was hardly catastrophic for, for Saudi or UAE. I mean, they worry about it as an abstraction and as, you know, what does it mean? What are the long-term implications? But life went on as normal. And in theory, you know, the way the U.S. sees it, Saudi Arabia will be a safer place for the deal. So, you know, I think a lot of it is about principle and about not wanting the U.S. to support Iran rather than about the practicalities of the deal. And so that makes it very unpredictable to, to know 
or to, you know, to, to say what they're going to do or, or how they want to proceed. Right. Right. And we saw Mohammed bin Salman, I think in an interview a couple of weeks back, kind of said, you know, he has Saudis have to live with Iran in the neighborhood. He said something slightly more conciliatory um, than the, the types of things he was saying about Iran during the Obama administration, when there was really a lot a more pan, a lot more panic, I think. I agree. Yeah, because in some things you see more conciliatory and other things it was like, wow, uh, he really is, uh, you know, going all out in a very aggressive way. So I agree. It was that was I thought that was really interesting. And do you do you have anything on just the Saudi, you know, the Saudis agreeing to talk with the Iranians in Iraq? I know it's been interrupted for a few weeks by the Iraqi government formation, the stall and that the Saudis have been willing to sit with the Iranians since Trump left. Yeah, I mean, that seems like, a, like a, a very large step forward because in the past it was almost unthinkable. I don't know what that means in, in practical terms. I mean, Sir, Sir Richard might have a, a better better insight on that than I do because to me it seems like, you know, what, it's, it's, not like, it's not like their problem is that they lack common ground in which to negotiate. They have a ton of common ground. They're, just, they're unwilling to see it because Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed for, you know, their whole lives have felt that the Persians are their mortal enemies. That's what they would call the Persians, their mortal enemies. And the only way to deal with it is to vanquish them. So like, I I think it would be a first if they were to sit down and and say like, oh, well, look, you know, what's good for you is what's good for me. And let's not bomb each other. I mean, that would be, that alone would be like a huge step. All I would say is that I'm, I'm, I'm I'm deeply skeptical of Saudis and the Iranians. I mean, there's a huge amount of initiative behind the scenes, like on the part of Oman, to get the two sides talking to each other. And I, I mean, you know, if, if you've spent time in the Middle East, you know that there are the there are basic civilities as to how you deal with your enemies, uh, or, or how you actually can, at certain points in time, sit down and talk to them. Substance, no way. Thank you both very much for this interesting discussion. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. I'm Laura Rosen, and it was a pleasure being a guest host. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For me and the team, thanks for tuning in. See you next week.